This episode of Voyager is sponsored by Wheelhouse. Wheelhouse knows what it feels like to be consumed by the work you have to do that keeps you from doing the work you want to do. To help you gain time back and grow your business, they can connect you to a virtual assistant as well as a suite of business services that can help you throw overwhelmed overboard and get back in your wheelhouse. Learn more at stayinyourwheelhouse.com. Dr. Doug Hurley. Can I call you Dr. Hurley? <laughs> or should I just say Doug? You can, you can, you can call me. <laughs> that, that literally, I've never called you Dr. Doug Hurley. You can call me whatever you want. All right. But yes. Okay. So first question I wanted to ask you is like, what are you doing now? You've got like a, a hurt ribs story, which I want you to talk about a little bit. But, oh, but oh what's, taking most, what's taking up most of your creative energy, most of your time these days? Yeah, well, uh, creative energy is the, um, we've got three kids, so uh, 11, 9, and 7, and, and we haven't done sports in the last year and a half, kind of, kind of since COVID, Yeah. so uh, really two years, and um, so literally two, two nights ago, before I traveled up from Fernandina Beach, north of Jacksonville, up to Atlanta to be hanging with you, which is an honor just to be hanging out here today, but um, we started season one with football, softball, and softball oh, yeah. with the three kids. Yeah. And we're and my wife and I are scrambling around trying to, you know, get all the kids to the right places. Oh, and yeah. of course, well, wait, what about gloves? What about cleats? What about a football? <laughs> we hadn't even thought about any of that. So creatively, it's like, how do we creatively manage a schedule to get all the kids there and do work and do life and all that? So that's the that's creatively that's what I feel like I'm in right now. Physically, um, you didn't ask that, but you did. Well, you I did ask at, you about the ribs. You jabbed thing. at the ribs. Because you thought you were healed up, but not so much, or maybe close. Yeah, close. Okay. So yeah, close. I thought I was a hundred percent until I, until I hopped in the truck and drove up here last right. night. Right. And after being in the car for six hours, and then you and I linked up last night. Um, Robin says to me, "Hey, go ahead and sit down." And I'm like, "You know what? It feels pretty good." <laughs> I know you were standing for a long time in our kitchen. <laughs> yeah, I felt like I was making you all uncomfortable, and I was like, "It feels good to stand and stretch after sitting for six hours." My ribs were just. Um, I could feel it. And, um, I thought I was good to go after that thing happened and, you know, three, four months ago. And, um, there's still a, a little remnants there. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. Well, let's, let's tell the rib story, but that's going to open up. Okay. What were you doing for the, all of last year? Because you were, uh, you were filling up with gas, a really big vehicle, right? Yeah. You know, and what's, what's bananas about this, there should be a really cool story because <laughs> we're going to talk, we're going to get, I know kind of where we're going. We didn't do a, a ton of planning for this podcast, but. I kind of know where we're going a little bit yeah. and we're going to talk about some military stuff and, and you know what? I wish it was a cool story instead. Yeah, it's not, it's not, it's the, there's, but no, it is funny though. It's hilarious. You can laugh. Everyone can laugh. Um, so I'm, so we're RVing. Um, we are finishing up a eight month RV trip. We had left Georgia, went through 37, I think 37, 38 States. We're coming across the border from South Carolina into Georgia. And like, okay, we're, we're mission complete. We're done. And I am pumping gas at a pilot gas station. Uh, my wife is with the three kids in the bathroom, and I'm getting all the trash, you know, cup, water cups, oh, and yeah. water bottles oh, out. Yeah. I've got my hands full. I step over the gas, the gas hose as it's as it's pumping gas into the truck, and I trip 
and I'm like, oh, I just got to kind of, I'm balancing on one foot while the other foot's kind of caught in the yeah. hose as yeah. I'm leaning away from it. And I'm like, oh, I'll, just, I'll be able to dangle my way out of this. Well, not so much. <laughs> no way. I fell with uh, 200 pounds of twisted steel. Uh, oh, man. I'm kidding, not twisted steel. I fell into this like con- concrete barrier that was sticking out of the ground and I hit it as imperfect or as perfect as you possibly could and broke five ribs. Oh man. Oh man. Did Jenny come out? Did they see you like on the ground or were you up? Were you standing up? I stood, yeah, I stood up right away, hit the ground right away. Cause it was, it, it was excruciating. And, um, and then I, um, I, I was, all this stuff is going through your head in like a half a second. Yeah. It's like, is this, is this permanent? Is this, am I going to be able to drive? Uh, Janie's never driven the RV. It's a big RV. She's never driven this oh, thing yeah, before. How are we going to get this home? We're, we're two hours from Atlanta. So all that's going through my head. So I, I finally pull myself up. I get into the the truck, into yeah. the cab. I'm sitting there with my hand on the steering wheel, and I'm kind of bent over, and I'm, I'm breathing hard. And the kids come running out. I'm like, Daddy, Daddy. And I'm like, just give me a minute. <laughs> and it took me, I am not kidding you, it took me eight to I'm nine. laughing with you. I'm not laughing at you. You can, la- you can laugh at me as well. As left with, it took me eight, nine, ten minutes to convince them that I that I I'm hurt. Okay. For two reasons: one, they haven't really seen me hurt like hurt hurt right, before. Right. Number two, if they're like, if he's hurt that bad, he'd be crying. Like he says, it hurts so bad he can't move. Well, to an eleven, nine, and, and seven year old, you're like, well, you'd be crying then. Right, right. And I'm I'm just sitting there. And it's not because I'm so tough. It hurts so bad I couldn't cry. To be totally honest. And so they they're like, well. Well, gosh, he's really hurt. <laughs> I'm like, I've told you that for the last eight, nine minutes. So yeah, so um, I'm still healed. That was in early November. I'm still healing up from that. I thought I was totally healed until I drove up to your house yesterday, and I feel a little tender in the rib cage. Yeah. Today. Well, sorry, man. I know that's a long time to sit. That's good. That's but good. You, so you mentioned something I think which is which is important to this whole story is that eight months. You're with an RV. So how did that come down? What what's going on there? Yeah, man, that was a it was crazy. So we were living in uh, North Atlanta. I was working full time. Janie was um, working full time in the house, uh, quarterbacking the kids, and um, it's just a kind of a, a, a multitude of uh, variables came together, and we're like, gosh, you know what? If there's ever a time to do something crazy like RV around the country, this would be the time because we were our, we were homeschooling our kids already. Um, it's still COVID. I mean, peak, still peak COVID. COVID. Yeah, they were in and out of school. And we finally said, "Hey, let's just let's just do let's just do homeschool for a while and see how right. that goes." So we're doing that. A lot of reorgs at my at my job with my church with the church I was working for, and um, and it was just a good time to sell the house. I said, "If we're ever going to do something like this, this is this is the time. Let's do it." So we sold the house, um, sold the two family cars, two station wagons, not station wagons, but metaphorically, uh, bought a huge huge F-350 truck, bought a 40-foot RV, um, resigned from my job, which was great. You know, I, I told them, they're like, that's awesome. You're going to go do that. And so it was like a six-week off-ramp. And then April 1st, we hit the road and went RVing. Yeah, you did like a Southern tour of the U.S. and then kind of worked your way around, right? Yeah, we still, yep, exactly. Good memory. We, we headed due west out of Georgia. And, like and I-10. I-10, kind of did that, bounced back and forth, got out to the to the Southwest and hit all those, those mountain States, um, spent probably five weeks in California, yeah. just seeing all the different spots in California, went up the Pacific uh, coast, came across the, the Northern part, uh, up into the Midwest and into, uh, New England and then down back to Georgia. And that was over eight months. I feel bad 
um, we kind of ignored all those those plain states like yeah, Nebraska yeah. and yeah. Iowa and Kansas. Yeah, they're pretty, but different way. Different way. Yep. Yeah. One of the guys I worked with, he's like, hey, I got a vacation home in Arkansas, man. You guys, if you're tired of being in that box of an RV, you guys yeah. can stop and stay there for free. And <laughs> and I said something to him. I didn't mean it for it to come out this way, but I'm like, we're not going to Arkansas. Oh. <laughs> it's like, he was offended. He's like, I'm offering you a free vacation home. Right. And you're bagging on Arkansas. What's going on? That was just too far north of I-10. I mean, you would have had to go out of your way. But I mean, that the, talking about the box, that was a huge box. I mean, I, I saw it. We ate dinner in it. I mean, it's huge. It was, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it was, it was huge. I mean, if you were going to go all out in an RV, that was the way to go, I guess. Yeah. If you're going to do, yeah, there's two sides of the coin. You know, one is like you're, you're, it's you and your wife and your three kids and you are in this thing all the time. Right. And... Um, that's tight and we're just not used to that. Right. And then the other side of it is just what you said. Like, this is pretty, this is pretty plush yeah. for, for oh, an yeah. RV. You got I think it was nicer than my kitchen. Your kitchen was nicer than my kitchen. I'm not, I'm not saying any comment to that. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was huge. I think your home is lovely. But you're, you're living on the beach now. So what, I mean, what's that like? You've never lived on the coast before. No, no, no. You did live cause you lived in Jacksonville back in your story, but what's it like living Fernandina beach? Yeah, we lived in Jacksonville before um, before we moved to Atlanta, uh, which we did in 2015. So before that, from 2008 to 2015, we were, we were in Jacksonville, but we weren't on the beach. Right. And it's interesting, you know, people come to visit you uh, from a different state, right. and they're like, and we're like, oh, let's take them to the beach. Right. And we'd go and have a blast, and, and the people visiting would be like, oh, I'm sure you do this all the time. Yeah. I'm like, you know what? We haven't been here since the last time that you were here, yeah. <laughs> you know, 14 months ago. But now we're living in Fernadina and Fernadina yeah. is, it's literally right there on the beach. Oh, yeah. And That's so, a beautiful area. We, lo- we love it. So we moved there uh, December 1st. How did you, I mean, how did you decide to land there and not, you weren't going to come back to Atlanta. You weren't going to go West Coast. How did you end up in Fernadina? Atlanta, we loved Atlanta. Um, personally, I would love to do the West Coast, like the Oregon Coast. Yeah, you know, after seeing yeah. that and traveling, yeah, we were there. talking about that. So just beautiful. Uh, but we yeah, fa- we have family close to Fernandina, okay. so my wife's family is literally j- on the other side of the, the border. Okay, and, and so it's like two miles by boat to go from Fernandina, Florida, to where she's from in St. Mary's, Georgia. Okay. And then my family's down in Orlando, and so we just felt we needed to, we wanted to get back and be closer to those guys for the kids, so the, so the kids can see the grandparents and cousins and all that, and, um, and we just love the beach. Yeah, and this is where you launched your, biz- your business, and we're going to talk about that later, but that's what you're doing down there, right? Yep. I mean, that you're officing business down there, every, all, everything, all of life is down there now. All of life is down there. I mean, I'm still coming up to Atlanta and a few other cities to, to do business, but yeah, we're headquartered in, in Fernandina. We love it. We want to... I, mean, I think we're going to be there forever, and forever sounds like a long time, but we're excited yeah, right now. That's cool. But this is not where you grew up. So let's let's back up. So where are you from? Where did you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Where'd you get your undergrad? You actually did a lot of schooling, and you had this long stint in the military. We're we're going to talk about that. But where did you where did you grow up? Because you're you're Midwest, right? Yeah, I was born in Boston, but I moved away when I was so young. I, I don't I don't remember any of it. And um, but my mom's from the New England. My dad's from New York. And then just kind of doing the corporate move. My dad was doing the corporate move. We ended up in Ohio, Columbus, Ohio. And so I, I would call Ohio home just because I spent the most time there. I got there in second grade, mm-hmm. um, graduated from there, went to college there, went to OU, Ohio University. Okay. Not the Buckeyes, the Bobcats. Right. But I'm a Buckeye. So I don't think you can, you can live in Ohio and not be 
a Buckeye fan. Right, right. That's the rumor. That's the rumor. Yeah. And no, no offense to any of my Bobcat <laughs> brothers and sisters out there. I love that school. Um, but I just love the Buckeyes. Yeah, that's fine. So did that. And then, um, and then I got my master's. Um, I think this is what you were asking where I went to school. You, you did a lot of schooling. Yeah. I just a quick flyby on that. Did a master's at Austin P state university. And, um, when I was in the, when I was in the army station at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and I got a master's at Trinity uh, in Chicago, in Deerfield, Illinois, and then a doctorate at George Fox in Hence Portland. The, the Dr. Doug. Early. That's the Dr. Doug. Yes. Yeah. I know you don't put that on your desk or anything. You don't have a name tag that says Dr. Doug Hurley. I think you may be the first person that's ever called me that. Well, it even felt weird kind of saying it. It felt weird looking at you across the Though table. You're, and hearing so, that. you're so smart and it makes, <laughs> it makes total sense. But yeah, I think that's the first time I've ever called you that. Yeah. Thanks for the smart comment. Yeah, that'll be the last time. No, I'm kidding. I may call you that again. Um, okay. So you did this military thing. Let's, yeah. let's, let's kind of go there. And I, I know we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that, but so how did you get involved in the military? I was, at, I was back in Ohio, graduated from high school and um, maybe a teeny bit too much information, but barely graduated. I was, I was a mess. I was, I was a hot mess. And um, honestly, my GPA was like a 1.1 1. 1 <laughs> okay. or something like, like, how do you graduate from high school with one point? It was like, it was a one point something. And so um, I didn't really, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know what I could do. I didn't have a ton of options. And um, man, there are plenty of young men and women who go into the military for all the good reasons. Right. Like serve my country and be an honor to wear the uniform. And, um, and there are a lot that are like me, like, I don't know what I'm going to do and I need to do something. And that was me. So, um, so then I joined the military, um, at, which was, which was great and it was helpful and it gave me a lot of, a lot of, I didn't have discipline. I didn't have focus and a little bit more personal information. I really just didn't have a lot of, um, just self-esteem and, and personal significance. And that kind of comes from some brokenness in my childhood and, um, and, and not having a lot of mentorship you know, growing up. And so when I got to the military, I was like, this is a good fit. Like, I feel good about me for like really good about right. me and what I'm doing and I'm providing value and I'm jumping out of airplanes and doing, doing cool stuff. So that was fun. And then I went to college. I came back and went to OU. Okay. Um, and I thought I was going to go to law school after graduating. Um, so I was a communication and a poli sci major and I was going to go to law school. And at the end of that, I was like, I think it'd be really cool to be a pilot to go back in the, in the military as, as an officer and as a pilot. And, uh, I didn't know, I didn't know any pilots in my life and then nobody really in my life that was doing what I was doing from a friend or family perspective that was full-time military. Um, but I did it. And to be honest, being totally honest, it was, it kind of came back more to identity again. Like it's not so much, Oh, I'm, I'm craving and yearning to fly mm -hmm. and serve. Right. It's more, I think it'd be really cool. And I'd feel cool about myself if I would be a pilot, okay. which sounds kind of junky to say out loud, but that's just me being totally open and, and candid about it. Was, was there anything that you were doing when you were younger that like would have given any kind of indication that, okay, you're going to eventually be a helicopter pilot. And we'll talk about what kind of helicopter here in a minute, but anything that made sense to, okay, you look back and like, okay, this makes sense why I'm doing this. Yeah. I, um, Probably two things that, that come to mind when, when you ask that question. One is, um, it, could, it could sound bad the way that I'm framing this up, but just being adventurous, not having a lot of boundaries, 
And then I think there's two kinds of people in the world when they don't have boundaries, they'll kind of retreat and self-protect and try to right. try to try to shield themselves from from harm right. and risk. And then there's the opposite of that. And it's like, oh, I don't have any boundaries. I'm just going to go out there and and act a bit out of control. Okay. And so, but not that I'm not trying to say that every pilot, every helicopter pilot, is somebody who is just um, out of control. Right. But think about what you're doing. We're jumping out of airplanes or anything that's kind of close to that. It's going to take a, a sense of risk taking, a sense of adventure, and all that. So I had that. I felt like I had that in a big way as I was growing up, um, and that's really never left. I mean, I still have that in me. You know, I'm a risk taker. I'm an adventurer. I'm a. That's my. I'm a pioneer. That's right. Good. Right. Yeah. Okay. So talk a little bit about the kind of helicopter that you were flying. Yeah. The, the one I. The one I spent the most time in was the. And how did you end up? flying that particular helicopter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that, I mean, that's, I didn't think about the story until you just said that. That's a funny story. And we'll see if I can give like a cliff notes version and work it in. Cause it's really, it's, it's no, just hilarious. Let's do that. So the, okay. So the helicopter that I spent most time in was, is called the Chinook and it's the, it's the really big one. It doesn't have a tail rotor. It's got the two main rotor blade systems. We could fit 65, 70 Rangers, army Rangers in the back of that thing. Right. I mean, it's, it's big. So that's one where I spent the most time. Um, I did the, the normal, it's called the CH cargo version when I was in the 101st after flight school. And, uh, and I did that for about four years. And then I got into a special ops unit um, called the 160th. Okay. And that's the unit that flies, you know, all the special ops units, Delta, SEALs, Green Berets, Rangers, Air Force, STS. And uh, that's the MH-40. It's still a Chinook, but it's specially modified. It's got some other things on it that the... The normal one doesn't. So the reason I got into the Chinook is um, kind of going back to that pioneer attitude, sense of adventure, right. and even going time back into, I want to feel good about me and, and have some significance. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking, if I can be the best of the best of the best and get into the best unit and get to this elite unit, then I'll feel really good about me. And I wouldn't have articulated it like that. I wouldn't have said that out loud, but that's what was going on. Now that I look in the rearview mirror and look back at some of the psychology and what was going on. Right. So... Um, so anyways, I get, to, I get to the 101st after flight school, um, and I was flying Hueys, which is an old helicopter. We were transitioning to Blackhawks, and they had to rotate all the pilots through to go get trained up on that. Well, I'm the youngest and most junior pilot, so I'm, I'm going to be the last to go. Right. And so, um, so anyways, the, the battalion commander came down and said eventually after a, a bit of time, he said, there are two options. You can wait for the Blackhawk transition, and go get trained up in that, or you can go do Chinooks. And right away, I'm like, Chinooks. And the reason was, across the airfield was the 160th, was that unit, the elite unit, you know, that was shadowy and cool right. and doing all this cool stuff. And had it, What year is this, by the way? This was uh, all this 19, let's see, I got to that unit in 19, late 1994, early 1995. So 1995 okay. is when this is going down. And um, black helicopters on the other side of the ramp, and I'm like, oh, I want to be over there. Yeah. And I, I, what I had heard is the quickest way to get there was Chinooks because a lot of the Chinook guys just didn't want to go and do that crazy stuff. And so I'm like, oh, I'll do, I'll do a Chinook transition. Sign me up. So I got trained in Chinooks, stayed, stayed in the 101st. And what the 160th wants you to do is they want you to have about 1,000 hours of flight time. Right. Um, they want you to be a go-getter. Right. They want you to have um, at least 100 hours of your flight time to be under night vision goggles because okay. they're nighttime pilots. Okay. They fly at night. One of, their, one of their sayings is death waits in the dark or, or we own the night. 
They've actually they've got that unit's got a bunch of uh, slogans. Right, that's two of them. We own the night. Death um, death waits in the dark. We own the night. So, um, anyways, I'm I'm just kind of building experience so I can go and try out. I I I, I go to like one of the recruiting meetings. It's in one of the gymnasiums. At, um, on base at Fort Campbell, 101st pilots show up to it. One of the officers and pilots from the 160th comes over, and he's just professional and sharp and in shape. And and he's like, hey, if you want to be the best of the best, you know, you know, try out for this. So he gives his pitch, sales pitch. And afterwards, and I'm I'm the youngest guy in the room. Afterwards, I go up to him, and uh, I won't say his last name. We'll call him, we'll call him Mr. Bob. So I said, and he's a great guy, but I said, Hey, Mr. Bob, um, I'd love to fill out an application and I'd love to try out. He's like, how old are you? <laughs> and how many flight hours do you have? And I, and I was like, I think I said like 220. And he's like, no, no total flight time, like flight school plus, plus your hours in the 101st. And I'm like 220. He's like, Oh my gosh, son. He's like, go back. I love your eagerness. Go back, train up and come back. Anyways, six months later, I'm back in the gymnasium when he's on his semesterly recruiting trip. Go back up there. I'm like, hey, Mr. hey, Bob, Mr. Bob, I'm here to get an application. He's like, how many flight hours do you have? I'm like, 301. He's like, keep at it. So I, long story short, I finally assessed with 420 hours. They let me assess, got into the unit. Um, that could sound braggish. I mean, I, I completely lucked out on a lot of the assessment, completely lucked out. But got into the unit, and I think as much of that as getting in is it's luck and it's just drive. Right. Like, hey, I want to be part of this, and I was pretty relentless, so I so I got into that unit, and then that's where I spent most of my time as an aviator um, okay. for the rest of my time. I did twelve years total, but the last seven ish, a little over seven, were were in that unit in the one sixtieth. Yeah. So, first time you ever flew flew at night. So, what was that like? Yeah, in training, uh, in training, it's um, it's it's tough because you've never done it before. Anytime you've never done something, it's going to be tough. But you've got an incredible seasoned instructor pilot next to you and makes you feel more comfortable and um but it's weird you're looking through tubes like think, right. you're looking through like the binoculars right. and all you see on the other side is green and shadows and and shapes whether it's the trees or the horizon or another aircraft or whatever that is but you get used to it you get trained up and then um it's different when you go from being the student and now you're responsible. Right. You know, you're the guy that's like, oh, you're the pilot in command. You know, and this is right away. This is like two, three, four years down the road. And you're the, you're the person in charge. And then it's like, you're good at it. Yeah. But now you're responsible for all the lives that are on there. So that's a different, that's a different level of doing that. And then when you get to a combat zone and you throw in the mix of the desert and the mountains and bullets and all that stuff, that's just, a, that's a whole different level of complexity. Yeah. And we, we can... Whatever you want to or can talk about, we, we can talk a little bit about that here in a minute. But, I, you know, folks that are listening, they don't know that they may not know the difference between special ops, special forces, Delta. I mean, how do you how do you explain all of that? How do you break? You were telling me a little bit last night, you know, the difference between what you did and, and what my dad may have done. My father was Green Beret, special forces. You, you, you were you were explaining some of that last night. So what's the difference Yes. Yeah, so, so the umbrella for um, the, 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 the men and women that are doing the, that special mission, special combat, special warrior type, type of stuff, umbrella would name would be special operations. And so each branch has their, has their own. Uh, so with the Army, and that's, I was part of the Army, the Army has Army Delta Force, which that would be a tier one unit, and I'll explain that in a minute. Uh, Army Rangers, uh, Green Berets. Your dad was a Green Beret. I think he was at 18 Delta. He was a medic, if I remember that right. 
um, but he was a Green Beret, and that's part of the Special Forces. Um, the Navy has the Navy SEALs, um, and SEAL Team 6, within that, there's different names for it now. And I'm not saying anything that's classified. This is like, there's been so many books and movies that have been written about this. I'm not, right, giving, a lot. I'm not giving anything away that I'm not supposed to. Um, but SEAL, SEAL Team 6 is a, is a Tier 1 unit. Um, and then Air Force has Special Tactics Squadrons, PJs, Combat Controllers. Um, and then the Marines have Force Recon, Recon uh, teams. And then the, and I think I forgot to say mine. Mine's the 160th, which is part of the Army. So my unit, the 160th, even though we're in the Army, we fly all of the special ops. So we would fly the Navy SEALs, Air Force PJs, and Special Tactics, and, uh, and uh, the Marines. So that's, that's the special operations. And then the Tier 1, because a lot of people don't understand that, Tier 1 would be that's like a top-level joint um, reported into the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and that's um, that's like Delta SEAL Team Six. Um, part of the 160th is is doing that, and there's kind of a, a element ranger that uh, reports into that, and then there's one of the STS teams from the Air Force that reports into that. But that's that's that Tier One, like quick response, counterterrorism. Um, yeah, so. Uh, that's the difference between the two. So to get into any of those units and the special ops units, you have to try out. You're not, right. get, you're not getting you're not getting assigned to that unit. Like right. when I graduated from flight school, they're like, "Hey, you're going to the 101st." It's right. like, okay, but to get into any of those special ops units, I just said you're trying out. Once you get into those units, if you're gonna if you want to try out to be into in, to go into Delta or go into um, SEAL Team Six. So if you're a SEAL and you want to try out to be part of SEAL Team Six, you got to try out for that as well. You're not going to get assigned to that after you finish SEAL training. You got to be a SEAL for a while, and then you got to try out. So those units are, I would, you know, kind of like to use that same phraseology that the best of the best. Right. You know, those are the people who are like, I want to be in the in the top. Yeah, unit. you know, I, I didn't, I didn't say I was going to ask this question earlier, but wh- at what point did you realize, okay, this is the direction I think I'm going to head? With this, like, when did that become? reality with you yeah um i or did, or did you go into things like always thinking this is kind of where i want to end up eventually or or no i mean i'm going back going back to that um you know graduating from high school getting into the getting into the army that being a good fit jumping out of airplanes getting some self-esteem reshaping my self-concept like man i'm i am i feel like i'm kind of made and wired to go at it to get after it to drive to have adventure, and so that's kind of that's kind of been me, and then also doing a lot of um, a lot of schooling and a lot of uh, personality assessments, wiring, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm just wired that way too. It's not even just because of what what I did or didn't do, or or how I was raised in my childhood. That is a component. Right. It's just like also just my innate wiring. So there's nurture and there's nature, and I think both those things kind of point towards that. Um, and then, but then it's like as soon as I. It got to the army. And I didn't know anything about the one six one sixtieth. As soon as I got to flight school and graduated, I'll never forget this. We were doing like a it's called a division run. And it's it's going to sound so weird. We may clip this out of the podcast, by the way. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, yeah. We're like, like, oh gosh, is going to say this out loud? It's just kind of goofy. But I'm sitting. It shows you. It just shows me how impressionable and how hungry I was to have significance. Which mm-hmm. honestly, I think everybody in the world is. I think mine. Uh, my bend was a bit unhealthy. You know, it's like, this should be more about serving and being part of a team and contributing than it should be about how you're going to feel about you right. because you're part of it. And I've worked through a lot of that stuff just to make you feel more comfortable sitting in the room with me. But um, so I, we're, I'm a young officer, young pilot, 
in the 101st, just got done with flight school, and we're doing a division run at Fort Campbell. So we're talking about you know 20,000 soldiers. You got the 101st Infantry there. You've got Fifth Special Forces Group. You got the 160th. Um, you've got all these other aviation units, and you're doing a division run, which basically is like put your you put your T-shirt on, your color T-shirt, right. get the flag out in front, and you run in formation, and everybody lines up, and you've got miles of soldiers running in unison and and running in uniform, and um, and I remember once you get done running, you stop and everybody passes you, so every unit gets to see every unit and right. kind of wave and clap and honor every unit, and there come these guys. And the black T-shirts and the black shorts and the Oakley sunglasses and the big mustaches and the long hair. I'm like, <laughs> who are these guys? <laughs> it's like, oh, those are the pilot. Those are pilots. Like, yeah, those are the 160th pilots. What is that? Oh, that's the task force. What? What is? I don't even know what they do, but I just want to look like that. Those right, guys right. just look cool. So super shallow, you know, too crazy right. shallow. But then you find out what they do. And again, going back to my nature and nurture, I'm just wired. I'm just wired and, and I bend towards that. Like, yeah. Let's let's move to let's move to the adventure. Oh yeah, and let's move to the tough tough stuff. Yeah, so some of this we talked about late into the night last night, which was a lot of fun. But are, are there some significant events or happenings, things that took place when you were um, when you were whether you were flying, whether you were? I, I know you spent some time, uh, a lot of time in Afghanistan. What of that? Do you want to talk about? Can you talk about? But any significant events that kind of stand out to you today? Yeah, that you still think about a lot. Yeah, there's, um, there's, there's just kind of like a, a really good, like there's a couple stories wrapped up, and, and we can kind of make it one. It's kind of one story, but let me, I can unpack that because what I feel like it does is it ties into so much of how I lead today, mm-hmm. and just what are some a couple good leadership principles that carry forward. Um. Because, you know, there's a lot of stories just for story's sake, but it's like, what's help, What's helpful and practical? Right, right. And so uh, I remember we were in Afghanistan. This was uh, May of 2002, and um, we, were, we, were, we thought we were going after a Tier 1 target. Tier mm-hmm. 1, not to be confused with the units, the U.S. units I was talking about, right. Delta and SEAL Team 6. A Tier 1 unit meaning like a top, top, right. you know, you would know the name if I said it. Right. And we're, we're going after this person, and this was in May of 2002. Uh, we had a, I think it was a SEAL team who had was doing what's called a SR, Special Reconnaissance. So they're probably like a mile away. They're on a mountaintop in the middle of the night. They're not moving. They're just getting eyes on the target. And they're giving us all the intel and feeding the intel back to base. I think we were in, I can't remember if we were in Bagram or Kandahar, Afghanistan at that point. It doesn't matter. But anyways, we we're getting all the intel and we're like, and they're like, hey, he's here. We've got eyes on. And the way that they're operating and moving, um, it looks like they're kind of packing up. They're going to move out. So um, kind of accelerating the story, we put the plan together, we launch, we're going in the middle of the night, there's no moon moon out, because the moon helps you see through the goggles, it right. is so, it's so dark, there's no light around, there's no city around, it's just so dark, and I'm the flight lead, so I'm leading three heli- black helicopters with a tier one unit in the back onto the target, and we're, we're approaching the target, and... Um, and the guy, so I'm leading, so I'm doing more communicating and talking and thinking. And the guy who's flying, I won't say his name, one of my greatest friends, not because he didn't do a good job, just just for um, just to protect his identity. But uh, but he's flying. He's just do, he's pretty much doing what I'm telling him to do. I'm like, hey, do you see the target up there at 12 o'clock? Uh, it looks like you're a little bit too far to the right. You need to come left about five degrees. Turn left five degrees. Speed up. 
There you go. You're looking great. So I'm kind of doing that coaching because we're supposed to hit this target plus or minus 30 seconds from the time that we said we would. So everybody who is overhead, whether it's gunships or it's the headquarters back at, at Bagram or Kandahar, everyone is like, we know when they're going to hit the target. So we're coming up to the target. It's weapons free, which means there's only bad guys on the target. And don't, don't worry about hurting anybody that shouldn't be hurt. It's just a bunch of enemy that are on the target, and we're approaching that. And um, we're getting it ready to fly right past the target. We're going too fast. The guy that's flying, my co-pilot, it's not his fault. I'm not coaching him well. My boss, uh, my commander, is, happens to be sitting on the helicopter, and he says to me <laughs> my name out loud, <laughs> and everybody else can hear. The team leader can hear. He's like, Doug, I think we're going to fly past the target. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're right. So I grab the controls. I tell the pilot, I said, I've got the controls. He says, I've, you've got the controls. I say, I've got the controls. And I, I, I push the brakes on. I pull, I dump the power out. I yank back on the cyclic, which means I'm, I'm putting the tail end facing the ground. Right. And I, I land on the target and I crash on the target. And, and this is all taking place in like a half a second. The team leader, Paul, I said, Paul, and he's still on a headset. I said, and I, we leveled the aircraft enough where it could fly off, but I was banged up too much. I knew I wasn't going to be able to come back and pick him up. And I said, Paul, and this is while guns are hitting the target. I mean, it's just a mess. I said, Paul, I'm not going to be able to come back and pick you up. Basically asking, do you want to exit the, the aircraft and hit the target? And he was just, he's like, we're good to go, Doug. <laughs> you know, like chill, laid back, you know, just um, like an Iceman. Cool. So anyways, they assault the target. So we take off, and now we got to figure out how am I going to land? I still have to get gas. We got to link up with the C 130 in the air to get gas to provide some kind of support for these guys. Right. I got to come up with another plan out to pick these guys off the target. They may, they may need to come off quick. So, anyways, a lot of moving parts, a lot of complexity, a lot of, a lot of failure, to be honest. Mm. But we made it work. And we got home, we got, got these guys off the target. We figured out a plan for that. We got back, two-hour flight back to whatever base we were at, Bagram or Kandahar. I think it was Kandahar. We get back there, do an emergency landing. You know, people could have got hurt on that. Nobody got hurt. We made it. So afterwards, it's like, um, it's, it's like, man, that was, a lot of people are saying, good job, Doug. Like, way to, way to pull it all together. And I'm like, man, it wasn't that good of a job. Like we went past, we were going past the target and we crashed the target. We fouled up that mission and nobody got hurt and to jump ahead, you, the person wasn't there. So they had escaped and, and somehow they weren't there. So, but nobody got hurt, but what, uh, so much money was wasted. I mean, millions of dollars of damage to the aircraft that I crashed right. and a lot of people could have got hurt. So we did a deep dive and said, let's do a really good after action review and look at the learnings from this. And so my point with this is don't be afraid of failure. Um, and of course, when you're in that environment, you don't want to fail because lives are on the line. But I'm just saying, it's like a general principle. You're going to fail. And when you do fail, don't run away from it. Dive into it. Learn from it. Like I got all the pilots in that room and I put the video in. You could see the video. Mm -hmm. And I said, let's unpack this. This is what you should not do. And it's not to, it's not to rip me apart. It's to learn from it. And for me, but for everybody else to learn from it. And so I love that. I love when I see businesses or churches or teams or organizations or military units not be afraid of failure because that's how, that's how you get better when you make them, those mistakes and then you dig into it. So I'll go on to add one more quick story to it. Mike Russell, was the, he was the flight engineer for that aircraft. The tail number was 24763. 
I can't, it was, I know it was millions. I can't remember if it was 1.8 million or 2.4 or whatever it was. A lot of damage to the aircraft. He went to the commander and said, please don't send this aircraft home. Like that's for a flight engineer, that's kind of his baby. He's like, please don't send this home. We can get it fixed here. And he's like, Mike, I don't know if we have all the resources here in, in Kandahar to get this fixed. He's like, we can get it fixed. Me and my team will get it fixed and up and running in three or four weeks. Well, he did. First mission back. Mike, by the way, him and I, anytime I was putting the crews together, I'd always pick Mike and his aircraft. We just, we just jived. And so Mike, um, we get into his aircraft. It's all fixed up. Two, four, seven, six, three. We take off. I think flying your dad's old, your dad was part of fifth group, special forces group. I, if I remember right, I think he was, but we were flying fifth group on this mission. Now it's June, 2002. I think it's a 2003, four is 2002. So May, 2002, the first accident, June, 2002, aircrafts uh, up in flight for the first time in four weeks. Um, Mike got it fixed. We are assaulting a target two aircraft. I'm leading it in a direct action mission, which means expect, expect engagement. Um, and I crashed the aircraft dark, no moon. Um, we're trying to land the aircraft, getting ready to fly past the target. And I crashed that rock. Um, oh, a buddy of mine was flying it. Oh. He couldn't land it. I said, I got the controls almost did the exact same thing. I'm like, I got to get this thing on the ground. We're going to go past the target and torch and just mess it up. Exact same spot. And to be honest, there's a part of me that want, you want to crawl under a rock. Right. You're like how incompetent am I? I'm risking lives. Why am I, I just made the same mistake or close to it again. And, but you can't do that. It's like, there's so much to learn here and there's so much at stake and you got to dive into the failure and you got to learn how to get better. And so for me, that has just become a mantra. It's not a run away from this vocation or this profession and don't be a pilot. It's like, how are we going to make people better from it? So when I look back to that time in Afghanistan and Iraq, there's a lot of learning points. There's a lot of relationships. There's a lot of loss. There's a lot of uh, emotion. But one of the biggest things is just that. Don't be afraid of failure. And then when it happens, dig into it, dissect it, do an uh, audit of it, and uh, put it under, under a microscope. Not the person necessarily, but what happened in the event. Brother, thanks so much for sharing that. And, and that's, that is huge. I know that's a big part of your story. Um, I think I've heard you talk about that story somewhere else. It, maybe of a seminar you were giving somewhere at one point. Um, such an incredible story. And you you mentioned several things. You you mentioned church. You mentioned mentioned business. Of course, your stint with the military. You were, we were with them for seventeen years total. Twelve. Well, I'm not counting the list of time. Twelve years as when I did the the pilot thing after okay. after college. So yeah, if you add up all the time, probably seventeen years. So talk a little bit about your career journey because it's been quite interesting. You know, even the part the eight months with the RV. <laughs> Which is great, but talk uh, a little bit about your career journey. Why do you keep ribbing me about that? Yeah, that no was, pun intended. No pun intended. That was horrible. Well, that was bad, man. Yeah, we'll clip that. Uh, yeah, so after so I left in 2005. I left, um, which was it was a really hard decision. But for for my wife, it was it was an easy one. She's like, "You're gone all the time." Um, when did you guys get married? So we got so we met the day I got back from Afghanistan. In 2002, August of 2002, the day I landed okay. after being deployed all that time, right after 9-11. You guys have been dating how long? And then we dated until 2000, we dated for a little over a year, got engaged in 2003, got married in 2004, and then I got out in 2005. Okay. So that's, so, but she was, from the time I met her until the time I got out, I think I did four deployments since I had known her. Right. So I think I did five, and the first one 
Like I said, I met her the day after the, I got home from that first one and landed stateside. I met her the day, day I got home. So for her, it was like, get, get, easy, get out, go, go do anything. So I got out, went into the business world, went and worked for um, a Fortune 100 a pharmaceutical company, um, which was, it was, it was, it was so much the same and mm. that, I mean, leadership is leadership and teamwork is teamwork and conflict resolution is conflict resolution. Like it doesn't really, a lot of it just doesn't matter. Like failure an assessment of failure and how do you get better from failure? It's the same thing, whether you're assaulting a target in Afghanistan or you're trying to do some sales campaign or initiative with, with a pharmaceutical company. I mean, so I love that. I love how it all translates. And when people are like, oh my gosh, I couldn't have done what you did in the military. I'm like, yeah, actually you could have. You're an incredible leader. You're a go-getter. You're sharp. You totally could have done that in the military. You just didn't do it. So I go to, I, I go to work for this company and um, so that's what's the same. What's different though, uh, and this is some of the best advice I ever got and it was from my wife. It was from Janie. So I'm talking to a colleague um, we worked together, a handful of, us, a handful of us worked together for this company and um, this division. And out, how we did as a team mm -hmm. affected our compensation. Now, I had my salary, but I had a compensation or commission package as well. And if, if we weren't, all of us weren't doing well, then I wouldn't, my pay wouldn't be as good as what I wanted. Long story short, I felt like he really messed something up. He kind of knew like he messed it up, but I wanted to talk about it, not mm -hmm. to make him feel bad, but so it wouldn't happen again kind of like evaluate the failure. Like, let's talk about this. So I'm upstairs uh, at home. Uh, my wife is in the basement. So there's th three floors, two floors, yeah, three floors separating us. If you can picture that, if I'm saying that right. And I'm talking to, to my colleague after the mess up over the last couple of days. And somewhere in that conversation, he says, hey, I don't know if you feel the need to talk about this, but if you do and get it off your chest, let's go for it. And I said to him, hey, it's not that I want to get it off my chest. I want us to be reliable and dependable and count on each other, so I do want to talk about it. So I start going into it, and he kind of cuts me off, and he says, just for clarity, you're not my boss. Like, like you're, you can sit here and tell me your opinion, but you're not my boss, and I don't have to do what you tell me to do. And I flipped a switch, and just like, I mean, I, just, I didn't scream, but I was just like, cowboy up, to, you know, take the, take the tail chewing, you messed up, let's own it, but let's own it so we can learn from it, so right. we can be better. So I get a phone with it. That didn't go so great. Get a phone with them. <laughs> Janie comes upstairs. She was down in the basement and she comes upstairs. She's like, oh my gosh, were you talking to so-and-so? I said, yeah. She's like, you cannot talk to him that way. And I'm like, why not? She's like, cause, cause you can't, you're in business. You're not in the army. And I said, but I was right. And she's like, doesn't matter if you're right. You can't, you can't talk to, all you're going to do is push him away. And I'm like, but he wasn't owning up to it. I was right. I mean, I probably said that 10 times. And she finally said, and I think this is probably the first time that I heard the word influence combined with leadership. She's like, okay. you want to have influence with him. You, you know, that's leading your business. You don't want to scare him and intimidate him where he's going to want to avoid you. You could have that kind of conversation with your army buddies, whether they're higher ranking or lower, you could just do it and you guys would be over it in, in 10 seconds. This is just different and you don't want to lose influence. And I said, wow, but I was right. <laughs> So, wow. so um, anyways, that was a great learning point. And so it, a lot of it was the same going from army to the big company. And a lot of it was different, like just that, like I had to get refined and it's not to manipulate people. It's mm -hmm. like, you just don't talk to people that you don't like. Now I know in my court, you don't talk to people 
that way. And so that's been a hard lesson for me over the years. But um, so I did that. Then I went to work for a software company, managing multiple teams there. And um, then I went to work for a church, um, managing teams there, a big church um, in, in the country. Did that for six years. And then we did the we did the sabbatical and did the RV trip. So that's like a quick flyby on on career. But I've, you know what? I, I loved it all. I love. I have loved every job I've been in. Um, again, it's, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Um, leadership is leadership. Teamwork is teamwork. Having a goal, a unified goal that you're all going after, it's, it's the coolest thing ever. My name is Brad Schmidt, and I'm the co-founder of Wheelhouse. A little over two years ago, we started Wheelhouse when I was actually a part of a network of local pastors that met regularly. We were brainstorming ways to create financially sustainable churches. At the same time, we were kind of commiserating about how hard it was to find good, reliable, executive admins who could work part-time, which is where everybody was at. That's what we needed. So what we did is we threw out the idea of hiring one full-time, sharing them, letting them work virtually. And so I grabbed a a buddy of mine to help me put it together and Wheelhouse was born. So now, now we offer an executive virtual assistant at 10, 20, or 40 hours per week. And the big idea is we believe everyone was put on this earth and given something good to do. And if that thing is not admin, then don't do it. That will be our wheelhouse, so you can you can stay in yours. That's how we that's how we talk about it. Uh, this year, we're continuing to diversify the industries we served. We've proved the concept in the nonprofit world, and now we serve small businesses. We have realtors, attorneys, healthcare companies, business coaches. And if you want to find us online, you can locate us at stayinyourwheelhouse.com. Talk a little bit about that. But such a great story. Um, if you could do it all over again. You could go back to Afghanistan or just go back to your involvement in special ops. I mean, what, what would you, and you've already hinted at it, but what would you do differently then? You talked, you told me a little bit about it last night, but what would you want to share now? Yeah. Well, it's so, it's, um, it's so funny. Like as good as the, as good as the army is, um, and special ops is about, about training you up. Um, and I think they're really good at that in, in a lot of regards. I, um, I want to say this respectfully because you know I respect everybody that's still in uniform. I, I honor what I did before and the guys I did it with. I feel like there's a component of, especially when you get into the special ops world, where it's we're really good at recruiting mm-hmm. superstars. Like, hey, you're already in the military. You are you are uh, really good in the big army. We want you to come and try to be part of this mm-hmm. small, select, you know, elite unit. And so we're good at recruiting superstars, but when they get there, even though they go through special ops training to develop that person and to kind of see some of the soft skills or lacks of soft skills going on and to have them integrate to feel like part of the team, I don't think that we're really great at that. So I'll give one example of what I would totally do differently. I remember, you know, I told you I got into that unit young and the way it works in that unit, you get, you get more, you get increased levels of leadership and responsibility, not based on rank Mm -hmm. as a pilot. For the most part, it's based on your performance and your hunger and how well you do and all that. So anyway, so so a guy comes in, and I have been in the unit for a handful of years, and a guy comes in and he outranks me, outranks me by two pay grades. And he's been in the army for eight, nine, 10 years longer than me. And he's got three, 4,000 hours more flight time than I do. And he comes in and he's having a hard time because he was, the, he was a, kind of a star in the big army for mm-hmm. years. And then he comes in and he's in this small team. 
So he's, he just doesn't feel like he's as important as he was in his previous place. And I totally get it. But anyways, he comes to, he, I'm looking for him because I need his office space. We kind of pushed him into the copy room. You know, like, here, hey, we don't have a, like a nice pilot desk for you. You're the new guy. We don't have room. We're going to shove you into the copy room. And it wasn't to make him feel bad. We really didn't have space. But it still feels kind of demeaning. Right. So he's in there. Anyways, I've got the planning room is busy with somebody else. I got a SEAL team coming in. I got to meet with the commander and, the, and, the, and his number two. And we're going to talk about some training that we're going to do. And I need space. So I go into his room and because there's, there's a little bit more space right. in there, the copy room. I was like, oh, we can meet in here. Well, anyways, this guy's stuff was in, the, in there, his beret and his wallet and his keys. So I move his stuff. I put it on my desk, and I'm walking back out to go back to that room, and I run into him. I'm like, oh, I was looking for you. I said, hey, I got SEAL team, whatever here. We, I need your space for a bit. I moved all your stuff, your beret and your keys and your wallet. It's on my desk. And he went off on me I mean, with a couple explosives. That's my stuff. Like, why, you know, you come and ask me before you do that. And so condescending. You can laugh what a jerk I was. Don't laugh at that I said this to him, but you can laugh what a jerk. I'm like, all right, let me try this a different way. Um, I'm the flight lead. You just got here. I need that room to talk to the SEALs. You're telling him this. Yes, you're not going to be part of the meeting. Your stuff's on my desk. What are your questions? And that's a rhetorical, like, I don't really want you to ask any questions. Right, right, right. And I walked right by him. As disrespectful, as condescending, as arrogant as you could be. So I did that. Um, He left that day got in his truck and was mad. Mm-hmm. And then probably two, three, four months after that, he was out of, he's just like, I don't want to be part of this. If I could go back and I, I've gone on my apology tour cause I, my wiring and, and my need to feel significant has been at the expense a lot of times of make of belittling people. And I don't do it anymore. Well, I try not to do it anymore, but I've gone on my apology tour and I need to go back to that guy and find him and apologize. But if I could go back, I'd be like, Exact same interaction. I moved his stuff. I would have done the same thing, put it on my desk, come out there, see him in the hallway. Hey, I moved your stuff. And he expletives me to death. I would have been like, wait, I am sorry. This is about something else. And I think I get it. I do need that. I need that room for this to meet with the SEALs right now. And I should have asked you first. But real quick, this is a great place to be. And I know that you don't feel like you are valued here. And you are. And I, I'm sorry that you feel this way. I've been there before. I've been that guy and it stinks. But I promise you, this is the best place to be. And as soon as I'm done meeting with the SEALs, let's go get a beer. Let's go hang out. And I want to tell you about that. And I want to give you some ideas how to work through this. Because it's tough, but it's worth it. Who knows? Maybe he would have stayed. Maybe he wouldn't have. But um, I would do that. I would go back and do that interaction and probably 199 other interactions differently. So you talk about an apology tour. What, tell me more. What do you mean by that? Yeah, just like I mean, I, I can imagine what you're doing. We we talked a little bit about that last night, but w- what is that? Yeah, what's the, going on there? It's the it's the guy that Janie's in the basement, and I'm upstairs, and I'm like cowboy up, and to, and you know, own up to your mistake, yeah. and you know, going back like, man, I I'm sorry that I I did it that way, and through through that company, um, gosh, the, even the software company. I remember I called up. Um, I don't want to say his name because he's still working there. Great great guy, great friend. I called him up like a year and a half after I left. I'm working for the church now, and I love my time managing those teams at the software company. I called him up. I said, hey, can I talk to you for a few minutes? Do you remember the time that um, we were negotiating a huge deal, and you were the sales director, and you asked me for my advice? And I said something like, you know, hey, squeeze that guy a little bit more. We can get more profit out of that. You're already giving him a good discount. He's playing hardball. You know, right. do, do this, this, and this negotiating tactic. 
And uh, he's like, and he's like, <laughs> this is what he says, which time? Like, I know you did that multiple times. Like, what customer are you talking about? And I'm like, I'm like, hey, I just want to apologize for that because um, that is not, I shouldn't have done that. That was totally incongruent. I was hypocritical. I'm saying that I'm this guy that walks with character and integrity and ethics. And then we get into a, a sales deal where we could get three or four more points, you know, profit points. And I would lean away from that ethical standard. And I'm like, I was just wrong. And I knew it at the time. And I'm just, man, I'm sorry. And, um, you know, and it was, it was, a, it was a good conversation, but so I've done, I've even done that in my church world. There are people who've worked under me in the church world and mm-hmm. I have still, I have still approached that job a lot of times with, here's the goal, here's the KPIs, here's the numbers, we yeah. got to hit it. And I got people around me going, who work for me are like, you know, we are a church, like we're supposed to be, have like grace and love and They're respect. telling you that in the conversation you're having with them. Um, probably, honestly, probably a little bit in, intimidated to do that. Um, but you know, I've gone back and right. apologize and I've reached out to a few people to apologize and, and haven't, um, and had, you know, haven't heard a response back. Most people are super, they, they're receptive to it. They forgive me. There's grace. Um, and I don't want to paint a picture like I'm this this horrible ogre. Like I feel really proud about a, a lot of the things I've done. But when I look back, what I would do differently, right. it's not it's not the um, tactical stuff to to hit an outcome or a KPI or or a goal. I'm pr- I'm pretty I'm driven. I'm pretty good at that. It's more the bringing the team along the way to get there. And if people aren't keeping up at my speed or doing it the way that I want want them to, I, I can be a jerk. And yeah. so, um, and I don't want to be that way. And that's. That's probably the deepest work personally that I have done in my life over the last, you know, three decades plus in leadership and business and just doing what I do is really excavating all that, doing the deep work, diving into self-awareness, diving right. into leadership, right. unpacking, oh, I, I want to be a pilot, not because I want to serve my country. I want to do it because I want to feel good about me, which even though I serve my country, which is good, that's exhausting. Yeah. And that's... That's, nobody wants to live. Nobody should live that way. And so I've had to do all the deep, deep work, self-awareness work, excavation work, counseling work, all of that. And so, yeah, going on my apology tour is, um, it's, th- it's the right thing to do and it's been helpful. Yeah. I mean, you're, Doug, you know, you're, you're so humble. The years that I've known you, you're incredibly self-aware. That's something I've always appreciated about you. Um, but thank you for being so honest. I'm, I mean, that's... Yeah, I mean, I enjoy connecting with you regularly. Every week, you and I have a call where we just kind of check in with each other. How are you doing mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, that kind of thing. Always enjoy our conversations. You're so incredibly self-aware, um, which I want to dive into this this next question I want to ask you is, you're, okay, you're living on the coast now. You've had this incredible career journey. Um, you've done all kinds of things. You're, um, what are you doing now? Like, where did you land? You're Dr. Hurley. That's the second time I'm going to call you that. Dr. Hurley, living in Fernandina Beach. What are you doing now? Yeah, so we, so we finished up the RV trip, and then we, we launched. Um, I launched, and, and um, I've got a kind of a supporting cast around me that's um, super helpful with it. A business called Rethink Work. And uh, it's really, we want, we want every um, leader out there, really every person out there in the marketplace, when I say marketplace, workplace, because people in the military wouldn't call it a marketplace, but you know, people out there working, I want them to be the best leader that they can be. Right. I want them, I don't want them to go through what I went through or 
or to, to short circuit it. Like, like, let's get through that process quicker. Let's accelerate. Why am I doing what I'm, what I'm doing, whether it's good or bad? What are those motivations? And, and to really get to know who they are mm-hmm. so they can be the best leader they can be, so they can lead their teams the best that they, and make them the best teams that they can be, so that their strategy, their business and their work can be the best. That it can be. And yeah. How did you How did you land with this? And I, I remember in the fall you were still you were still in your RV tour. Uh, you were probably somewhere up north at the time, and you were just kind of wrestling with. I think this is where I'm headed. I think this is what I'm going to do. And I, I know you probably wrestled with that for two, three, four months. Um, how did you land with this? With rethink work. Yeah, um, that's that's a it's a great question. You know, um, let's see if I can. I think probably two parts, a hybrid answer of two parts. One is I've always, I've always been passionate about leadership. You know, from the day I got into the army, jumping out of airplanes, even though there was a whole, there was a whole component of like, I'm doing this for me, which that's not really what leadership is about. <laughs> you know that, I know that it's about serving others. And, um, but at the time, but I was always passionate about it, like kind of a student and curious about it. And so then you just look my, my military, look at my military experience, my business experience, and the church experience. Everything was always there was always a huge leadership component to that. And then I got the doctoral in leadership. So there's just like this, all this, all of these things, all these roads point to Rome. So for me, all of these experiences point to to leadership. And then eventually, not just being a student, but being being a coach and being a being a, a leader around leadership. Um, so that's 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 one thing. Um, and then the, the other part to that answer is uh, what I was doing at the church was really focused so much on this, what I'm doing now. And I'll explain more maybe in a minute, you know, exactly what we're doing here in the business. But um, so much of what I was doing at the church was that, well, during COVID, one of the teams I was leading got clipped because of COVID. COVID was hard on businesses. COVID right. was hard on, on churches oh, yeah. as well. So a lot of programming got cut, and this is one of the programs that got cut. So what, at the end of the RV trip, when me and my wife and and some advisors, personal advisors, and people I've worked with who are smarter than me, who love leadership, who get business, um, were kind of pushing me towards this and saying, man, you should do this. I went back to the church and said, that program that got clipped, there is so much great intellectual property and assets around leadership that me and my team developed and I did with my doctoral work. Can, and not that I deserve it, but can I get that if you're not doing anything with it? And right. they were so awesome and so gracious. And they're like, yeah. yeah, we know you're gonna go do great things with it. We saw your business plan, go crush it, here you go. So they gave me all that. And that for me was very affirming to be like, yeah, I felt like this was kind of a calling to move in this direction. Yeah. And when I got that answer from them, it was like, yeah, let's go do this. So it was really, even though the business just started you know, last year, it was really easy to ramp up. Right. And then I've got just an incredible supporting cast that's like, we're gonna come alongside and help this thing get going. How long did you work on your business plan? Because it was great. Yeah, thank How you. How long did it take you? Um, that's, it It didn't take me long. I'm not saying that like in a braggish way, but it's, um, I've been I've been loving doing leadership philosophies, business plans, strategy sessions. Right. I've, loved, I've loved doing that. I've done that for years. I'm like the geeky one in December when like, hey, let's let's meet as a leadership team for two, two and a half, three days and do that. I'm like, this is so awesome. And people are like, oh, we got to sit and sit in a hotel conference room <laughs> as a leadership team, you know, right. in, in conference and the Magnolia conference room, whatever. Right. And uh, it's always the Magnolia. It's always the Magnolia. Room. And I just like, I, I love it. I think it's the best thing in the world. And so, so for me, it was pretty, it was pretty quick to do. Now it's gone through a couple of iterations because I bounced it off of yeah. smart people like you, my advisory board, um, some people that are helping out working, working with me. Um, but it came together, you know, 
pretty pretty quick. Pretty quick. So what does a day in the in the life of Doctor Doug Hurley look like right now? Because you, I mean, you, you've got you've got clients, you've got uh, some incredible conversations that are going on right now. So what does a typical day? I know you're not just hanging out on the beach in Fernandina yeah. Beach, though that sounds like a lot of fun. But what does a day in the life of Doug Hurley look like? Yeah. So there's, there's really, there's, um, there's two, there's, well, there's three things that we do that we really do for, for rethink work. Um, and then I'll tell you about the two client types. So one is, um, it's straight up executive coaching, leadership coaching, like let's, let's come in and coach you and, or your executive team to help, you know, you be the best executive team that you can be. Um, the other part, the other part is management consulting. Mm-hmm. And so coaching is, and you know this, cause you've been, you've been doing this for years and you've mentored me in this area. Coaching is more, let's figure this out together. And it's really you, the, the person who's being coached or the team that's being coached. Let's figure out some of those problems and some of those solutions. And I'm just going to be a really good guide to, to help you, help you get there. Consulting is where it's like, no, I have a pretty strong opinion as a consultant. I want to come in. I diagnose the problem. I see what's going on with you and your business after you've been open about what's going on and, right. and disclosing what's going on. And we're still going to do it together, but I've got solutions that I think are going to help you and your right. business. And then the third the third thing that we do is um, is around assessments. You know, we've got, we're certified and qualified on a bunch of different assessments. Now, what we're not, we don't want to be, we don't want to be the assessment people. Right. Oh, hey, can we do the Enneagram with you? Really, the, that stuff isn't, that is a on-ramp into yeah. the consulting or the coaching piece to help you be the best leader and or help your business be the best business it can be. But those are the three but things. Side note, do. Enneagram, yeah. which, which number oh, are you? I'm an eight with an eight wing. Right. I knew that, but yeah. I thought I'd ask it. Yeah, eight with an eight wing. Yeah. And the teams that, for, for those of you that are listening that doesn't know what the Enneagram is, there's nine different types, and eight is one of the types, and eight is like a hard-charging challenger. And what they'll say, Enneagram experts or people who are qualified, I'm qualified in the Enneagram, will say, well, usually you have a wing. Like to the left or to the right, you have like a secondary. People who have spent time with me say, you don't have a wing. You Your wing is an eight. You are just a straight-up eight. You are a challenger. You're going to challenge. You're just going to go hard. So... Um, so we're not. We don't want to be the assessment people. So right. so um, so what we're doing then every day is is one. It's 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 doing that coaching um, with with an executive coach, and that's that is expounding on this a little bit more. That is doing the deep dive. Let's dig into some of these assessments. Not to put you in a box. Oh, you're an Enneagram A. Oh, you're one of those guys. No 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 no. No, there's good to that, and there's weaknesses and blind and you know spots that you can't see. So let's dig into that and look at that. Um, now let's put that in the contrast within the context of your environment, the rest of your team, your business, what you're trying to do. So that's the, that's the coaching. And then the consulting, if, if I could talk about the consulting piece. Um, so going back to being in the planning room or in the Magnolia conference right, room right. in December, um, you know, Doug gets all excited in December. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to plan for 2022. This is so exciting. Right. And then you hit and you get to January and things start going on and you already have what you expect your business results. So if you can picture, you can see me, I'm holding up two hands. Yeah. One hand over here is a bookend and that's your business, your, your business planning and strategy. The other bookend over here is December of next year right. or this, this year, 2022. Did we hit our numbers? What are the business results? What, what we do I think really well is all that stuff in between. Right. Because you get excited, Doug gets excited about hitting his goals, but then you get to the fourth quarter of this year and you're like, man, I don't think I'm going to hit my goals. And it's everything in between that goofs that up. And so 
real quick what a high level with those things are. One is, what's the design of your team? Mm -hmm. Let's look at your team, let's look at the leaders, let's look at their makeup, let's look at their personalities and their temperaments. Let's look at how that all works together with the leadership team and then and then are you aligned with, what are your strategies? Are you aligned with your strategies? And we have a, a process for going through that. That's one component. The other component is the inspire piece or the leaders, like straight up leadership piece. How are, How's the best way that you can lead as a leader and lead your people based on who they are? Right. Not just the business that you're doing, but who they are. So, you know, if I have a team of 10 direct reports, I have a, t a team of 10 different people. How am I gonna lead each one of them and not do the military. There's one way, right. and it's my way, because right. that doesn't work. Every, most people know that doesn't work, but people still do it. I did it for years. So that's the second piece is like, let's really help you lead your people. And then the third piece is the um, kind of the hiring piece. And we're, right. not, we're not a recruiting firm, but it's like, we, now that we know your team, we know your culture, we know the kind of people that you want from a soft skills uh, makeup to come on your team, let's look at the work to be done and then kind of the science of the, of the talent and the skills that you would want to be part of this team. And we help you put that amazing team together. And then the last piece is, still within the bookends, let's diagnose all that. Whether that's 360 reviews, whether that's empl and employee engagement surveys, whether that's the ELTs, the executive leadership teams, goals and um, objectives being permeated throughout the organization, let's diagnose that middle piece. But that's, if you don't do that well, which a lot of businesses don't, your, your people are gonna get taxed. And that's when you get into the great resignation. I can't keep good people. I can't hire good people. We feel like there's a toxicity on our team. The virtual environment, the digital environment in COVID has just made our team kind of not cohesive. Right. It's those things we hear. It's not because of the bookends, because of the business planning and the results. It's all that stuff in between. That's where we come in and I feel like we do a good job. So how does somebody find you? Where do they go? Yeah, the quickest way, easiest way is just go to our website. So uh, rethinkyourwork.com. Rethinkyourwork.com. Yep, we want you to rethink the way that you think about work and leadership and teamwork and your, and your work and your business. Um, so go to rethinkyourwork.com and you'll, you'll see a couple call to action buttons on there to, to um, get in contact with us. Is there, is there like an ideal client? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing there may be, but is there an ideal client that when you think of like, okay, this is the kind of person that I, I, I have the most joy serving yep. or at most benefit from our services? Yeah, that's uh, I, uh, such a good question. And I wish I could give you one answer and I can't, I don't know why, because I'm feeling like I got to give you two. So two, so two answers. The first answer is um, somebody who really, who really wants to do it. So, and let me, let me explain that just a teeny bit. The concept that people are self feeders and will rise to this like rock star leadership level on their own. That's a myth. That's just a unicorn. You can't intentionally address and improve the things that you're not aware of. And your strengths and weaknesses aren't gonna improve on their own, even if you just take like, oh, I'm gonna take the Enneagram and all of a sudden you're better. So That doesn't solve everything? It doesn't solve everything, no. Okay. Even though they're really fun, all those assessments are fun, fun to take. actually. But, um, but so I think you need, so people who know that and are hungry and they're like, I, I need help. I need a guide. So it's that, I love that client. Um, what I did, and to, sometimes it's good to say what I don't like. An executive team says, we need this, they bring us in, and then one of their senior managers is getting roped into some of the coaching and consulting we're doing, and they're rolling their eyes, and they're like, I gotta sit here and talk to them about you know how I'm frustrated with the culture, and I, it's like, really, I, I kinda don't wanna talk to you, because you don't wanna talk to me. This really isn't gonna be helpful. So it's that person, 
the first of my two parts is the person who's hungry, who wants it, who needs it, who's just humble enough to say, I need a guide, because everybody needs a guide. I mean, I've, been, I've got the most incredible mentors and leaders who were patient with me, developed me, i.e. Janie. Yeah. Hey, you can't talk to him that way, but, yeah. I'm, but I'm right. You can't talk to him that way. I mean, it's just everybody needs a guide. And then the, the, the second one is um, when I hear from a client, and th- these, are the, these are the pain points, and I already said a couple of them, I, I, can't, I can't retain good people. We have had, we've had a 22% churn rate over the last two years in right, a row. Right. You know, and one of our, our four goals is to have 10% retention, uh, 90% retention, so don't lose more than 10% of our people. And we're more than doubling that over the last two years. I need help. I can't hire, I can't hire great people. We haven't hit our goals in the last two years. We don't have team cohesiveness. When, we, when I hear those pain points and, and somebody shares that with me, it's like, oh my gosh, we wanna, we wanna jump in and help out. Um, and don't be to be clear, I'm not saying we do everything because right. like I go back to the two bookends, you know, business strategy and business results. I, I'm not, we don't really want to develop that from the ground zero for you. We, I'm not, I'm not going to start up a small business and help you do that. There are people who I refer those prospects out to say, no, you need to go talk to this person. You want to start your business from ground up, go talk to this person. I don't do that. So I've got, there are five things that, five types of prospects I say no to, and it's very clear in my mind. So we don't do everything for everybody. But if you're a business, a small to medium, a small size to medium sized business, and we we can do some large ones too, but our sweet spot's more that like 20 employees up to 300 or 400 employees. If If you're walking through and I said some of those pain points and you're like, oh yeah, yeah. He's inside my head. Yeah. We're dealing with that. Um, and we want to deal with that middle portion around that people tax. If we don't get the team right, if we don't get the hiring right, if we don't get the leadership right, that's our that's our client. That's our target. Okay. This will be the last question, probably. Um, I told you I was going to ask it. So one thing, at least one thing that you're most hopeful for in 2022, most excited about, most hopeful for, that you're thinking about all the time for 2022. Yeah, from a... Um, can I give three? Um, why can't I give one you answer? Can give, you can give three. Can I give 40 answers? And by the way, this is, this is like early February, so I'm not sure when we're going to release this episode, but this is still kind of early 2022. Yeah. Um, thing, three things. There's three things I'm, I'm most excited about. Um, one's personal, two is personal, three is for work. First personal is um, that me and my family just get deeply integrated. We are all about relationships. We think relationships, by the way, uh, I don't know how this didn't come out in the podcast before now, that we think that's the most important thing in the world. So everything I do with business and leadership and clients and, and coaching my kids' teams and everything is about relationships. We feel like that is hands down the most important thing in the world. Everything else is peripheral. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm a, I am more of a task-oriented person than a relational person. And at this point in my life, through a lot of grace and through a lot of mentoring and a lot of deep counseling and ex- personal excavation, I get that it's mostly about relationships. And I'm still wired towards the task over the over right. people in a lot of ways. But um, So I want my family to get plugged in so good to Fernandina and to North Jacksonville. I'm so, we're all excited about that. Number two, um, I want to, um, I want to find just a, a really great community, church community there. So we're, we're looking to get to dive into that. And then number three, from a work perspective, what I, I don't know if you said keeps me up or I dream about both is I want to talk to that person now who sat in Magnolia conference room, got all excited and they are in February 
and but they didn't hit their goals in December mm-hmm. last December. They didn't hit the, their goals the previous December. They just got excited in the Magnolia Conference Room a few months ago because they're planning and talking and dreaming and hoping. But nothing has really changed the way they're doing their business. And I want them to find us now. Not reach out to us in September, October, November and go, there's no way we can hit our numbers this year. Please help and triage. This is 911. Well, we can do that. I want them to get in touch with us now so we can get them set up to deal with all that inspire, that, that designing, their team, their leadership, and we can help them now and we can do it quick to get them on the right track. So as they get into the second quarter, the third quarter, and the fourth quarter, they're like, oh man, we're going to hit our numbers and things are good and the team is humming. That's what, that's what I kind of dream about at night. So okay. good. Yeah. Dr. Doug Hurley, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for driving up. I know it's a five, six hour drive, but thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Man, last night was great. Thanks for hosting me and cooking an amazing dinner. And um, actually, no, amazing omelet this morning. Best, breakfast. Breakfast. Yes. Best omelet. I was trying to say, did we fix it? No, we didn't do dinner. No, it was an omelet. Good, great omelet. And your wife is um, amazing as always. And, you're so, and so are you. So thank you. I feel honored to be here and, and to be part of this. Thank you, brother. Voyager is brought to you by Core Media Source. Editing and mixing by Kevin Duthu. Recording and studio coordination by Beth Gravencourt. Songs used on Voyager include Like the Ocean by The Big Letdown and Could Be Anyone by Courses. All music provided by Epidemic Sound. Join us every Wednesday to journey through the lives and minds of creative visionaries, artists, and innovators who are changing the world with their work.